Good morning. Uh, my name is David Min, and, and I am the Associate Director of Financial Markets Policy here at the Center for American Progress. Uh, I'm excited to welcome you today for this panel on the mortgage finance system and its reform. As we all know, we are in the midst of a massive financial collapse, which has exposed huge flaws with our housing finance system and the larger system of financial regulation in which it exists. As a result, we sit at a historically unique moment where not only is there universal agreement that substantial reform is necessary, but perhaps also the apparent political will to get some reform done. But while there's broad consensus that major changes are necessary, this consensus dissipates when the discussion turns to what those specific changes should look like, particularly when it comes to the components of housing finance. That's why CAP has been convening a mortgage finance working group composed of some of the nation's leading experts on our, including the distinguished experts on our panel today and a number of other key players. This working group has been meeting weekly with the goal of developing recommendations on regulatory reform, ones which we hope will win support from many in the progressive community. Uh, the handout you received for today's event represents the first step in this process, a document that embodies the principles we think should guide the reform of the mortgage finance system. While this reflects significant discussion, I do want to mention that this document has not yet been formally endorsed by the institutions or individuals represented in our working group. As you can see, we've come up with eight principles, and I want to touch briefly on each of them. <clears throat> the panel discussion will explore these principles in greater detail in a little bit. First, we have access to credit and liquidity. Any successful housing finance system must obviously be able to attract and deploy sufficient capital to meet the housing needs of its population. In the United States, capital is brought in primarily in two ways. First, there is a traditional bank lending model in which deposits are used to finance long-term mortgage loans. Second, you have the newer but increasingly important secondary markets in which mortgages are pooled and securitized with those securities and sometimes derivatives of those securities sold off to investors around the world. In order to maintain sufficient credit liquidity, it's critical that we ensure that both of these types of financial activity function efficiently and that they instill a high degree of confidence in the depositors and investors who ultimately fund our mortgage system. Our second principle, countercyclicality, stresses keeping credit liquidity consistent over time, putting the brakes on credit expansion during periods of growth, and making sure the credit is available during periods of deleveraging. Our third principle is that of risk management and oversight, the idea that credit risk should be appropriately assessed and distributed. Without going into too much detail, I think it's safe to say that our current system of credit risk management was flawed at all levels, and as a result, risk was improperly understood and distributed. Going forward, major reforms must be implemented so that risk is better managed. One way to improve this risk regulation is our fourth principle, standardization. Standardization of underwriting and documentation allows regulators to better oversee risk and supports liquidity. Standardization also benefits consumers by allowing them to make better informed choices and investors by promoting deeper and more liquid markets. Our fifth principle is that of accountability and transparency. In short, this is the idea that maintaining some measure of skin in the game promotes more sustainable mortgage lending, and that in the famous words of Justice, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Greater accountability and transparency at all levels of the mortgage delivery process will result in better outcomes. Our sixth principle is that of systemic stability. Much has been said about this already, but in the post-Glass-Steagall world, it is important that we adopt measures that prevent too-big-to-fail financial actors from destabilizing the financial markets. Our seventh principle is that of enhanced consumer protection and aligned incentives. For the average American family, their home is their single largest investment. 
For other types of investment, we have developed schemes to protect buyers from fraud, including disclosure requirements, strong regulatory oversight, and the recognition of a statutory fiduciary duty. Similar protections for home finance should at least be considered. Finally, our eighth principle is that of equitable and fair access to credit for all communities. This does not necessarily entail subsidizing credit to underserved communities or mandating lending on unsustainable or economically unviable terms, but rather this principle requires that credit be made available to all communities on appropriately risk-priced terms. <coughs> now, the Obama administration has suggested it may unveil its financial regulatory reform plan in the coming weeks. This will likely propose major changes to all areas of our financial system in the secondary markets, at the level of primary lenders, and at the point of loan origination. We hope we will hear something about these plans from our first speaker, Michael Barr. After Michael's remarks, the panel will focus on the topic of reforming the secondary markets. Although clearly all the parts of our housing system are interconnected, important, and need reform, we need to understand better what went wrong and what did not. Now, as we focus on secondary markets, one way to think about them is as a spectrum. On one extreme, you have a purely private market with unregulated private institutions making up the secondary markets. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a secondary market dictated by a government agency. Think Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but with an explicit guarantee and 100% market share. And then you have everything in between. We've listed a few of the examples we think are interesting and compelling on this slide. Going from the private end of the spectrum to the public end, we first look at the Danish model, in which private mortgage institutions are strictly regulated in terms of risk and underwriting. Then the idea of private mortgage lenders regulated as utilities. Then there's the GSE model of private ownership with public backing, either implicit or explicit. And then there's the government corporation model uh, operating without government strictures, a little bit different than a pure government agency. Our panelists will discuss these different models a little bit later. So with that in mind, I want to introduce our keynote speaker today. But before I do that, I want to, on behalf of CAP, uh, thank the Ford Foundation, which has been a key supporter of our working group, and Living, and Living Cities for its support as well. So Michael Barr is counselor to Larry Summers, President Obama's National Economic Advisor and Director of the NEC at the White House. Previously, Michael was a senior fellow at CAP, where he worked on the emerging mortgage crisis unfortunately predicting all too accurately that the Bush administration actions in 07 and 08 would prove inadequate to prevent a widespread collapse of the housing market. Michael is also a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. He's an expert on financial services, financial regulation, and their impact on low and moderate income families and communities. And in the Clinton administration, Michael served as Deputy Assistant Secretary under, of, the, of the Treasury under Treasury Secretaries Rubin and Summer. So we are very pleased to have him back at CAP today. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you, David, and thank you to uh, <clears throat> my friends here at the Center for American Progress and to all of you for being here. I want to lower your expectations dramatically about the nature of the remarks I'm about to make. I will not be unveiling the President's plan for financial regulatory reform before he does. I won't be unveiling the President's plan for mortgage finance reform before he does. Um, what I want to do is say a little bit about what the administration has done thus far uh, and suggest some principles uh, or guidelines in our discussion uh, going forward. Uh, and then I'm really very much looking forward to the discussion after my remarks, which will be much more interesting because they will be unconstrained by um, having to take any particular 
um, position on behalf of um, or, uh, or not on behalf of uh, the, um, the government. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation, to the exchange with all of you uh, that follows. Uh, President Obama has been uh, very focused on the uh, trouble in the financial system uh, as a whole, uh, and uh, in particularly on the way in which the financial crisis is affecting ordinary Americans. And one of the uh, key initiatives uh, that uh, the President was determined to make uh, upon coming into office was to respond quite aggressively and early uh, to trouble in the mortgage finance uh, market. Uh, and so uh, the President uh, announced uh, a plan uh, at the end of February uh, to try and stabilize the mortgage finance system uh, and to provide relief uh, for homeowners uh, in the current crisis. And uh, that is um, a plan that was uh, unveiled that uh, includes three uh, main elements. Uh, the first is uh, additional efforts um, to support historically low mortgage rates uh, through support for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, so the President uh, referred to an announcement the Treasury made earlier in the day, uh, that, that day of the announcement that would um, and did provide an additional $200 billion in capital uh, to the GSEs uh, in order to ensure their ongoing stability, their central role and strength um, through, this, uh, through this crisis. Uh, as well as uh, continuing to support uh, Treasury and Federal Reserve purchases of mortgage-backed securities of Fannie Mae uh, and Freddie Mac. Uh, the second major element the President announced uh, was an initiative under the authority of the um, Federal Housing Finance Agency uh, for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, to refinance uh, the mortgages of homeowners uh, who had loans held or guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie, uh, who couldn't take advantage of current historically low mortgage rates, who were stuck in higher rates, uh, because their loan values had dropped significantly uh, over the, um, the last uh, year or so. And they had loan-to-value ratios in excess of 80 percent. Uh, so under this uh, new authority, Fannie and Freddie will be able to refinance uh, those mortgages down to current his, uh, low rates. Uh, we anticipate that would help up to four to five uh, million homeowners uh, get more affordable loans. The last major element of the plan uh, was the $75 billion initiative uh, to engage in real uh, loan modifications, uh, loan modifications that would help troubled homeowners get down to an affordable rate of 31% uh, debt-to-income ratio uh, and uh, hopefully uh, keep them uh, in their homes. And it's anticipated that this element of the plan uh, would help three to, up to 3 to 4 million uh, homeowners uh, get, obtain uh, reasonable loan modifications um, under the program. Uh, the President promised that uh, we would unveil the details of this program and detailed Treasury guidelines for the industry. Uh, two weeks later, uh, which we did on March 4th. Uh, so on March 4th, Treasury released uh, guidelines uh, that can be acted upon by servicers uh, effective immediately uh, in order to get homeowners out of uh, troubled loans uh, and into more stable loans. 
the program works through a series of incentives uh, paid to servicers, to investors, uh, and to borrowers uh, to get down to this low rate of 31 percent. I'm happy to um, answer, answer you know, questions about that uh, during, during the questions and answers. The second major um, element of this uh, plan uh, was to establish standard industry guidance uh, for loan modifications, uh, guidelines that are issued by the Treasury that servicers can rely on in understanding that this is a reasonable loan modification that they're undertaking, reasonable from the perspective of the investor, reasonable from the perspective of the servicer, reasonable from the perspective of the borrower, uh, and uh, eligible for payment by the U.S. government uh, to support that, um, that, stream of, um, uh, that stream of reductions. Uh, this uh, plan is now in effect. There are further details of it that we are uh, working on. Um, we, in making the announcement, for example, uh, noted that we would be coming out with further um, efforts uh, to reduce uh, troublesome second liens that many borrowers um, are facing. Uh, and we'll be uh, coming forward with details on that uh, initiative in the, coming, uh, in the coming weeks. This is, of course, uh, an effort to uh, deal with the current crisis and to begin to provide some breathing room uh, to borrowers uh, and to the industry and to the economy um, as part of a, a broader effort uh, that the administration is undertaking to provide some breathing room to the financial sector. Uh, obviously, uh, we are working um, uh, around the clock on a series of initiatives uh, that have been unveiled uh, in the last few weeks, uh, more of which is being, um, uh, may have already, but is soon to be unveiled uh, this morning with respect to small businesses, um, and a uh, continued set of initiatives that will be unveiled uh, in the coming days and weeks, uh, trying to provide stability uh, to the financial system so that our economy can begin to recover. Now, at the same time that we're very focused on dealing with the current um, financial crisis, uh, we're also very focused on thinking about uh, the future of the financial system. Uh, some of that involves legislation uh, to help us get out of the current crisis. So, for example, uh, the president strongly backs uh, balanced and reasonable bankruptcy reform uh, that's working its way through the Congress right now. Uh, the President strongly supports um, efforts to um, uh, fix the Hope for Homeowners program uh, that's working its way through Congress right now. Uh, but part of it is much more forward-looking. What kind of financial system do we want to have uh, in, for the next 100 years? Uh, what kind of financial system would make it um, less likely to have the severity of the financial crisis we're in now? What kind of financial system would make it uh, less likely that when we do have a financial crisis in the future, uh, that that financial crisis uh, rips through our financial system uh, the way that it has, um, <clears throat> the way that it has uh, during the current um, financial crisis? And in thinking about that set of um, issues of financial reform, uh, the president uh, is keeping some key principles. Uh, in mind. The first is uh, that we need to have a better system of financial regulation that protects against and contains systemic risk. Uh, we need to be uh, not focused just on the safety and soundness of particular institutions, uh, but across the financial system. 
the second basic basic principle is one that we need um, uh, strong oversight uh, and capital requirements uh, across uh, across the financial system. Uh, the third is that uh, if we um, are uh, concerned about systemic risks, we can't have systemically significant institutions outside of any system of uh, financial regulation. Uh, we need a new commitment to, uh, to openness and transparency and accountability uh, in the financial system, uh, and that needs to be a central uh, tenet of our work going forward. Uh, we need consumer protections um, that take into account uh, how uh, people actually make decisions and behave, uh, rather than solely relying on uh, uh, abstract models uh, or promises that more information uh, lead to better outcomes. Uh, we need to um, have uh, key standards of public and market integrity. Uh, we need re to restore integrity and trust in our financial system, basic human values uh, that have been driven from our financial system uh, and need to be uh, brought back. Uh, we need a regulatory system that's integrated and gap-free, that's not based on regulatory competition, uh, but on an understanding of the kind of regulation uh, that we need uh, across, uh, across the financial system. And then lastly, we need a financial system uh, and a system of financial regulation uh, that's integrated with um, the rest of the world. Uh, and we're going to work closely with other nations uh, on those efforts. Now, with respect to... Um, with respect to mortgage finance, obviously we have a, a, a tough set of choices ahead about how to think about restructuring our mortgage finance system so that it's once again uh, the pride of the world. And I think uh, doing that from the current weak state uh, may seem uh, quite challenging, quite daunting. Uh, on the other hand, there's an openness to change and an openness uh, to fresh thinking um, that I think um, this crisis has generated and that if we're um, going to be honest and faithful to our charge, we need to, um, we need to take, it, uh, take into account. Um, the kind of standards that, um, uh, that uh, David discussed earlier uh, this morning, I think are uh, useful sets of principles for us to think about uh, in terms of the future of the financial system. Uh, we do need a system that um, provides liquidity. Uh, across our mortgage finance system. We need a system that uh, sets standards uh, so that consumers um, and investors and the world can rely on the fact that um, underwriting in the system is being conducted appropriately uh, and, um, uh, and the like. We need a financial system, a mortgage finance system, uh, that works in downtimes as well as uptimes and a financial system that works when one region of our economy is struggling while others are prospering. We need a mortgage finance system that serves the needs of minority uh, homebuyers and of low and moderate income homebuyers uh, and doesn't leave uh, low income communities uh, behind. We need a mortgage finance system that's transparent and accountable. And we need a mortgage finance system in which consumer protection um, is at the heart of, uh, is at the very heart of our system of mortgage finance, uh, not an afterthought, uh, not a relegation uh, to um, second-class status, but consumer protection that really protects 
uh, consumers uh, in our mortgage finance system. So that's all I'm going to say. I don't have the answers to your six questions. Um, I have um, only uh, a set of uh, guidelines for how to think about them. Uh, we're going to be working very hard in the coming weeks um, to fill in the details. We welcome your thoughts and input as we do. And I very much look forward to listening to the conversation for the rest of the morning. So thank you very much. So what we'd like to do, hi everyone, I'm Sarah Rosenwartel at CAP, and uh, it's wonderful for us to have uh, our uh, alumni uh, back with us today. What we're going to do here, since Michael's promised to stay, we're going to take two questions now, then go to the full panel, and then at the end of the panel we will again open up for questions, and Michael will join us again and be part of that discussion as well. So before we proceed, does anyone want to, Christine, why don't you call upon people? That'd be great. Hi, Ellen Seidman from Shorebank and the New America Foundation, and it really is good to have you back. Um, uh, you've talked about mortgage finance, and I realize that you've thought of, about it in terms of home ownership. But can you talk a little bit about the balance between home ownership and rental and uh, things in between? Thanks. <laughs> sure. Uh, there's a, there's. Um, it was my my desperate attempt to try and narrow the range of topics um, that, uh, that that are open for discussion. Look, I think that uh, we um, are going to need to uh, we're going to need to have a better and more balanced policy housing policy uh, in the future than we have had in the past. Um, I think that uh, particularly in the last uh, decade, we've fallen, we as a country have fallen behind in our commitment to affordable renting policy. Uh, and there's enormous amounts that we can do going forward uh, to redress that, uh, redress that kind of imbalance in our policy. I think there's also a lot we could and should and need to do uh, with respect to ensuring that our financial uh, system uh, serves, um, serves the needs of those providing rental housing. Uh, and uh, uh, we're, we're quite focused on that need um, and, and hope to uh, be able to continue to provide um, some liquidity to those markets, which are also uh, quite, uh, um, uh, quite troubled right now. There's, um, I think, also a, a wide range of uh, players involved in our mortgage finance system. I, I, I didn't mention at the outset, but another area that we're working on, for example, is uh, uh, liquidity support for state housing finance agencies. Uh, that in many communities are doing uh, quite important work and have um, found themselves frozen out of the markets. Uh, so we'll be looking uh, very closely at that and working with FHFA and the GSEs uh, on additional liquidity measures um, for state housing finance agencies. Uh, so so um, uh, beginning of the conversation, uh, uh, we have a lot of work to do, but I think the, the fundamental point, Ellen, that you raise is exactly right. Let's um, uh, let's be sure that as we're reforming our mortgage finance system, we're also uh, uh, looking at the full range of housing needs of our communities. Yes, I'm Ben Kurovsky. I'm uh, from Voice and Noise Foundation. I'm a, and I'm a foreign observer here in their country trying to see and understand the system. And one of the first things that struck, 
struck me as very surprising is the amount of importance given to the credit scores to such an extent that I hear parents discussing more the credit scores of their children than their school grades. So I, I really wonder how, how can you keep shackled a system to something so non-transparent that really no one understands within this industry, which is artist credit scores. How can you try to find something that is more open and more clear? They're all proprietary systems, so they don't want to look into what they have there. But is this not one of the most basic pillars of, uh, of financial freedom to understand what you're being rated on? I, th I, th I think that's a nice, uh, a nice point, and I think one of the things we're trying to do as we think about um, the consumer protection system going forward is um, th uh, a focus really on transparency in the system, and, and I think you're right to point out that there are aspects of the credit score process that are not, uh, needless to say, not fully, uh, not fully transparent. Um, I would go uh, further than you uh, in your assessment of our, our children's education. I wouldn't want people to focus either on credit score or on grades, but actually on whether our children are learning things in the school and what they're learning. And um, I think that may be a lesson that's uh, of more broader applicability. Till the end of the program, so we'll have him back. If folks would join me, please, Susan, if you'd go to the far seat. And Alex, can we pull back up the uh, slide of the eight principles? Uh, okay, great. So I am. Sarah Rosenwortel, and I, as I said, I'm the Executive Vice President here at CAP, and it is a huge pleasure for us to have uh, the individuals who are here on this panel today with me, and more importantly, I think, to try to have a discussion with them about some of the really big questions. As Mike, um, as, as there's, there's a lot of, there's an enormous range of possibility. Our ability to imagine, if you will, uh, is, uh, uh, huge right now, and that's, a, that's an advantage, but I think it also makes it hard for people to engage with the discussion. So the aim today is to try to create um, perhaps an arbitrary structure for this discussion, uh, and that's what we try to do with the principles and the range of options. Uh, let me first introduce the, the folks who have been part of the group along with some of their colleagues and really many others, Ellen and others, who are uh, sort of central to uh, the, the thinking about this issue going forward. Um, first I have Susan Wachter, who is a professor of financial management and real estate finance and city and regional planning at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, Susan, I've had the pleasure of calling a colleague when we were back at the Department of Housing and Urban Development in the Clinton administration. She was the Assistant Secretary for Policy Development and Research. Um, next, we have Barry Zegas. Barry is currently the Director of Housing Policy for the Consumer Federation of America. He also consults with foundations, nonprofits, and others through a firm, Zegas and Associates. He was president of the National Low Income Housing Coalition for 10 years in the 80s and 90s, and then was at Fannie Mae for a number of years. Uh, before that, he was also at the US Conference of Mayors as a senior staff person for housing, community, and economic development. 
Um, we next have Ken Wade, who is the Chief Executive Officer of NeighborWorks America and oversees the provision of technical assistance, financial assistance, and training to assist over 3,000 community-based organizations. They also have a national network of more than 240 affordable housing and community development organizations that serve 4,000 communities. Ken joined NeighborWorks in 1990 and has had 25 years of experience in community development. Finally, we have Michael Calhoun, uh, who is President of the Center for Responsible Lending. Um, uh, I, I hate to say it, but uh, unfortunately, uh, CRL has proven to be uh, um, uh, both the indispensable organization in helping us understand this crisis and far too prescient in being able to predict what has come to pass, uh, warning many of us first of the dangers to consumers and communities and then to the larger systemic risk to our society long before uh, many others understood what was to come. Um, Mike has specialized in consumer law for more than 25 years. He's a frequent uh, testifier on Capitol Hill and is vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board's Consumer Advisory Council. So um, what I wanted to do is try to get us into as much of a discussion as possible amongst the group. And to start, um, I wanted to ask each of the panelists to talk a little bit about the principles and what they see as not that anyone is, is uh, going to guide alone, but where they see some uh, importance uh, and what they would want to emphasize is thinking about design. Susan, we have talked a lot about this in the past, and uh, one of your concerns has been uh, liquidity and also the role that standardization plays in uh, providing liquidity. Do you want to talk about that for a couple minutes? Yes. The, um, the importance of liquidity and access to credit is obvious. And we take it for granted in the United States. Uh, obviously, all these principles are related and important. But in some sense, at the basis of them is access to mortgage, liquidity, and capital markets funding this. I want to make a particular note that in the US, we have um, a fixed rate mortgage, a standard fixed rate mortgage, which is self-amortizing, uh, got us out of the Great Depression and was instrumental in the savings and loan crisis. Uh, we would not have that but for the secondary market that we had for years before it went awry. Uh, and we wouldn't have it without standardization either. So standardization is key to what has been until the last, uh, until 2000, 2006, a successful mortgage system. Barry, um, you have uh, uh, talked a lot about the role of innovation and creativity. And there's perhaps some tension between standardization and innovation and the way that the secondary market system can provide both. Do you want to just start sure. with that? Um, I think uh, two things, actually. One is innovation. It is intimately linked to standardization. One of the functions of the secondary market ought to be both to bring innovation into the marketplace where it sees opportunity, and also to be able to quickly adopt innovation that it finds in the primary market or in other secondary market areas and bring standardization um, and discipline to the process. Uh, the history of the system we have, I think, illustrates that well. Um, there are f uh, several areas, one's in products and being able to bring products into the market for which there'll be wide acceptance and liquidity, uh, or to take products for which there are weak markets and shallow liquidity and help grow them very rapidly on a standardized platform with broad risk management. The second is in services, uh, both services to consumers uh, and services to lenders um, and non-traditional borrowers. To Ellen's earlier point, non-traditional borrowers um, who may be, part may be able to find a way to participate with the secondary market, uh, that it can bring um, products and services quickly to scale for them. And the last is in process, in helping find ways to bring process innovation and standardization 
to the business of making mortgage loans and by through that means compressing margins, reducing costs, and helping those benefits spread throughout the system. It's very, very hard in a system that would, that's dominated by only a number of large lenders right, to create effective innovation that spreads through the system because those innovations have uh, market uh, value, uh, can be used to capture and dominate markets and capture and dominate counterparties. So one of the big advantages of a secondary market system ought to be, and I think has been in the past, the ability to bring those innovations across the board and make them available to any lender, any originator, and help drive those process innovations so cost reductions can benefit consumers as well as small and large producers. Ken, um, our country has a history that um, is not, it's not the case that the last 100 years has seen mortgage credit uh, system naturally providing good access to credit and we suddenly went awry in the last decade. We had, uh, even with institutions like the FHA and its role in providing capital um, and some standardization, earlier part of the history had a very unfortunate history of uh, discouraging credit in some communities. We have a long history of redlining. But in uh, recent years, we were beginning to do better in ensuring that capital access was made more available to a wider and wider array of spectrum. A spectrum people, and there was a lot of innovation going on that was helping us to figure out how to do home ownership right. Um, and then something kind of went a little bit funny. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how we should be thinking about getting that uh, right again as we build the system going forward? Sure, sure. And I, I think uh, you know one of the things I'd like to just just comment on, obviously, is uh, some of the um, you know I guess some of the uh, blame that's been laid at the uh, foot of the uh, uh, Community Investment Act, because obviously uh, there are those who would wish to, uh, uh, you know, say that the crisis was caused by making loans to those people who shouldn't have got loans in the first place. I think there is a body of work out there I know that we're part of and many other community-based organizations that's been able to demonstrate you can create sustainable home ownership, uh, provided that borrowers are well-prepared, they're in loans that are suitable to their circumstances, um, and uh, they're in a, a situation where they buy a home that they can afford. And if you look at where all the problems in the market are right now that precipitated the problem, granted that now we're in a much deeper and more broad-based challenge with job loss and things like that, but the problems in the subprime market were primarily related to a breakdown in those three areas. Bar borrowers. Uh, basically, uh, on the home purchase side, it's not a very transparent uh, uh, process at all. Uh, most consumers are less well prepared to, to purchase uh, what will be the or engage in the largest uh, financial transaction in their life, likely, uh, as they are to, you know, when they go to purchase a, a pair of shoes, uh, when you think about it. And, uh, you know, the system is stacked against the consumer. Uh, at the end of the day. So it seems to me going forward, we would need to ensure that number one, there still has to be something that would require equal access to credit so that we can ensure that all communities will uh, be able to benefit from uh, uh, the access to credit. Uh, it would seem to me that that also has to be coupled with some requirement or some standard of suitability. Uh, and any way you slice it, uh, it seems to me being able to offer mortgage products to people who can't demonstrate they can pay them back is inherently, uh, uh, at best, problematic 
at worst, uh, something even more egregious uh, than that. And then on the accountability side, it would seem to me, because we have this disaggregated delivery system, uh, it would seem to me that there has to be more accountability built into the system. So one of the ideas that's advanced you know, around that issue is assignee liability, because that likely would have enforced more discipline down the chain if I'm going to be stuck with the liability of somebody else's bad judgment in this disaggregated uh, delivery system. Um, Mike, we uh, have obviously, I, I think there's not any disagreement that we got massively out of whack the ability to regulate and protect consumers in such a complicated transaction. So I wanted to ask you, everyone agrees that we need to provide greater con consumer protections, but talk a little bit about if, if that is a high degree principle, what's the right, um, ha what's the right way to, to do that? Is it, um, uh, is it do we build it into the system at all of the different levels, uh, secondary market, primary market, and consumer? Is this an issue, in essence, consumer protection issue that we should be thinking about as we think about reform of the secondary market? I, I think the good news is that there is a broad consensus that consumer protection is at the heart of a stable financial system. And you're hearing that even from regulators who were the most resistant to consumer protections over the last 10 years. I would want to emphasize, though, that there are really two separate issues there. Uh, the focus today is about the financial crisis uh, and the meltdown of the financial system. For many lower-income borrowers, though, this financial the mortgage system was a disaster going back six or seven years ago when it was totally below the mainstream radar. Uh, one of the things we did, we went back through databases and tracked what was happening to subprime borrowers. And even if you look through relatively robust economic times of 99 through 2004, subprime borrowers were losing their homes at an utterly remarkable rate. Through that time period, a subprime borrower had about a one in five risk of losing their home with each subprime loan that they had. And those subprime loans had an average life of only two to three years. If you took a typical subprime borrower, who many of them would be in successive subprime loans, close to one out of three of those borrowers were losing their homes in the early part of this decade, not just in the crisis period now. Now it's more than half of those borrowers are losing their homes. So one of the real problems we've had is that consumer protection has been viewed solely through the safety and soundness lens. And it needs to be also viewed through the broader, well, what are the goals that we're trying to accomplish with our involvement in the extensive government and public involvement in the financial system? Um, right now, we are largely back to where we were in the early 90s, where we have essentially a deregulated mortgage market still that is in a lot of ways masked by the fact that currently the private players, particularly in the secondary market, are largely not in play. You have, once again, like the early 90s, you have the GSEs and FHA dominating the market and in that role able to impose some standards. But they're not underlying regulatory or legislative protections. And then finally, what type of protections are needed? There have to be specific uh, protections against 
loan terms and loan delivery methods that create incentives to generate bad mortgages. Um, and those would include prepayment penalties, payments for steering borrowers to higher cost loans than they qualify for. And it's not enough to just have general standards. A fiduciary duty is needed, particularly mortgage brokers. But those general duties have fallen by the, the wayside every time when it comes, to, when they go up against the pressure to close a profitable deal. Virtually every state had prohibitions against, for example, uh, influence appraisers to push for them to hit the mark and come in with a high appraisal. But all evidence is that that kind of inflation was the norm because appraisers who didn't do that didn't get the business. So you can't rely just on these generic uh, do well, don't commit uh, bad acts. So, so you're arguing essentially that we need to align the incentives so that, so, so it's both a both a sort of traditional uh, pro prohibit particular types of uh, provisions, terms and conditions, but also the, the, the financial incentives that are designed between all the different layers of the system need to be aligned so that the incentives are to do, provide products that work. Alex, can we try to switch to the sort of spectrum chart for a second, the next one over, uh, next one more, thank you. So I, we, having sort of talked about some of the principles, I want to sort of turn us for a moment to talk a little bit about how well different future models. But to be clear here, we had a model that essentially had three components. We had a, uh, a purely public portion of the market. It's not really purely public because private lenders provided capital for government-insured loans. The government essentially provided a 100% guarantee against loss to those lenders, however. For FHA and uh, uh, rural housing services and VA, there were a variety of, of loan products. VA has a small risk share in it. Um, that, those products uh, for the market, that share of the market over time shrank and shrank and shrank. Another tier of the market was provided by the GSEs, which in, uh, if on this spectrum probably are the private ownership public uh, charter model. And uh, they con uh, controlled at one point in uh, the mid to late 90s a significant portion of the market. And then over the late 90s and uh, the early part of this decade, we saw that, in fact, that their market share also continued to erode dramatically as the third portion of the market, the what we call private label securities, essentially a market of originators and providers of capital that were driven by access to investors through private label mortgage-backed securities and derivative products. And that third portion of the market grew to be almost 50% of the market by the time that the bubble started to collapse. Um, and uh, what we could imagine replacing that sort of hybrid system with all three with is something we're really talking about uh, is what that middle part of it looks like again. There will always be a government spec, uh, sphere, we're sure, and there will probably continue to be some private market just as there is for the jumbos and others. Uh, but the question is, what does the middle look like? Do the uh, purely private or purely public models make sense for that middle? What was once the GSEs? How do we take back from the, uh, avoid the problems that existed in the purely private market? And so I wanted to ask each of you, uh, in part responding to the principles that you argued are so important, uh, which, how do you envision something uh, emerging in that uh, space? And you might, uh, I'm not asking you to sort of pick your your model for the future unless you want to go there. But I think in particular, what do you see some of the advantages and disadvantages of each of these models uh, 
for offering some of those, uh, for serving the different uh, priorities that we laid out at the beginning of the discussion. Susan, you want to start? Well, I think that the key here is we need standards, and we need standards not only for the uh, consumer, for consumer choice and for consumer protection, but also for the investor market as well if we have a private component. And as Michael well said, we have standards right now, but in the securitization market that prevailed and grew to almost half, as Sarah just said, uh, there wasn't standardization. There was a multiplicity. There was a profusion. Uh, how are we going to have, if we have a secondary market, how are we going to have standardization going forward? Uh, we can't simply say to every organization, we're going to micromanage everything you do. Thus, I think that uh, if we are going to access the power of a secondary market, and secondary markets are extraordinarily powerful, we have to make sure that those companies that access, or, or even uh, whoever has access to the secondary market, has standards. And the standards are not only important, as I said, for liquidity, uh, for inexpensive capital, and for consumers, but it's also even important for capital at risk. What's interesting is in that in this past experience of five years, 10 years, going back even into the mid-1990s, is that these firms that were offering mortgage-backed securities through the secondary market, in many cases, capital wasn't at risk with the mortgage-backed securities because they weren't trading. These MBS were marked to model, not marked to market, because they were not standardized. They were so heterogeneous. They were rated, but they could not be held accountable. So not only did we have deregulation, but we didn't even have market accountability. I believe going forward that we need to have smart regulation, but we also have to have capital at risk. So I see in this range here a role for the private sector as long as it's standardized. Let me follow up on that because I, I strongly agree with what, what uh, Susan's saying. And in this domain of innovation, and I, I think it actually applies also in the area of accessibility and affordability, I think there are five uh, common features that you want to try to have in a system um, to foster the kinds of results that lead to lower costs for consumers, responsible innovation, and widespread availability of products across all different kinds of producers. One of those is standardization, which, which Susan has spoken about very eloquently. Um, we have plenty of evidence of how this worked in the past with the introduction of low down payment mortgages, which were not invented in the secondary market, but were adopted uh, by them and improved and made broadly available on very standardized terms that really set the standard. Um, and for a long time, that was the only place besides the government uh, you could get it. So standardized, I think, is very important because it allows the product to trade widely and to uh, Susan's point, creates transparency around performance and other things. Second, is available to all lenders. One of the traps it would be easy to fall into in, in some of these models um, is to allow relatively vertical integration to develop um, where, where very large lenders with access to the capital markets could control the activities of the smaller lenders, community bankers, credit unions, others who directly serve communities, because they will constrain the availability of capital to those uh, lenders. And uh, we know this from experience, uh, because it was the availability of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and FHA financing um, in the last 10 years that kept many of those lenders in the mortgage lending business and kept them from having to agree uh, to exclusive non-competitive agreements with capital markets providers and warehouse lenders who very much wanted to create channel integration from start to finish so they could dominate and capture a share of the market. So availability across all lending platforms is very important. 
Third is profitability. One of the true market tests of whether a product is sustainable is whether it's profitable, whether you can keep it going economically without constant infusions of subsidy. To me, that speaks against the government model, which I think tends to uh, be very slow in adopting uh, to non-unprofitability and creates an incentive to develop effective products. Fourth is it should be focused on the mortgage industry. Uh, and this is, for me, one of the key reasons why a specialized agency or a specialized set of agencies is very important. I think if, if nothing else, this crisis demonstrates that people who didn't really know anything about the mortgage business thought it was very, very easy to get into it um, and sustain it at very high levels. To so the gentleman's earlier question about credit scores, I believed for a long time uh, that those had become a symbol to people of good underwriting. That that's all you needed. Uh, I don't think the GSEs, I know the GSEs, never adopted that attitude. They found them to be effective tools. But because they were a monoline industry, they were focused on this segment of the industry, they paid a lot of attention to other things and, as a consequence, brought a much different approach to it. To, Sarah, uh, to Susan's point, their, their knowledge that money was at risk because they guaranteed the securities that their loans went into created a culture of risk management and risk awareness. Now, we can argue whether it, you know, whether it worked as well as it should have, but if you compare the books of the two GSEs today um, with loans in the private sector that were not in a regulated secondary market, you can see a tremendous difference. Fifth um, is competitive. There's been a lot of question in this model. Uh, should we have just one? Do we need two? Should we have ten? Uh, I don't know if ten's too many, but I know one's too few. Um, I don't think that the public or the market would be well served without a competitive tension between um, secondary market actors who are both trying to gain, share, uh, do business, um, and come to market more quickly with different products. Um, you know, the level of competition between Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the kinds of activities, uh, good activities, that that drove um, I think is underappreciated. Um, you know, when I worked in the public interest sector before going to Fannie Mae, I thought competition was, you know, deciding who got to, who got to testify first or, you know, who put out an issue paper first. And when I got to Fannie Mae, I realized I had no idea what competition was all about. I mean, these were companies that really felt that it was important to be, to be, on the, to, to be in the lead, right, and to perform well. And I think that's an important function because it keeps everybody fresh. I do believe in this model. It has to be constrained in some fashion. I haven't settled on public corporation, government corporation, or some model similar to what we had. But I don't think you can get to these standard features on either end of the spectrum. Ken? Sure. I, I, I'd uh, just like to echo uh, Barry's point, last point, because I think, you know, clearly allowing this to be totally privatized. Uh, I'm not sure that that would help us, at least from the perspective that uh, uh, I'm looking at, and that's access and affordability and consumer protection. So it seems to me that uh, that would provide the least uh, uh, assurances in that arena. And then obviously if you swing all the way over to totally government for the whole market, uh, that has some limitations too around innovation. Uh, broad access, uh, attracting capital, and the like. So it seems to me there's no silver bullet in this regard, and I do think that it would have to be coupled with a variety of things in order for this new market that's going to emerge uh, to work well. I mean, there will need to still be private players in the market for things that folks uh, talked about uh, a little uh, earlier. You know, there will be things that, whether it's a GSE model or the FHA, 
they won't be able to do, just given their limitations. And there likely should be credit available to people who can't fit uh, in that box. And so the private sector, you know, responded to that and over the years developed a range of products like Jumbos and others uh, that, you know, were able to provide uh, liquidity and, and credit to people who didn't fit in the uh, uh, tightly con constrained uh, GSE and government uh, uh, boxes. But, you know, without appropriate regulation, oversight, and then the other thing that I think uh, has to be part of the mix, too, uh, is enforcement. Because there are a lot of uh, rules on the books today that just there was no capacity to enforce. Uh, and that's whether it's at the state level that had some of the responsibility or at the federal level, whether it's the FTC or any of the regulatory agencies, there just didn't seem to be adequate capacity uh, to fulfill the enforcement role of regulations that uh, were on the books. And I think that's something else that we're going to have to pay closer attention to. I think we certainly have to build a regulatory structure that at minimum recognizes the likelihood that a private label security market will return um, and, and probably needs to uh, encourage it as well. I think it's also important though that the basic marketing dynamic for mortgages is that mortgages, uh, a standard fixed rate mortgage became commoditized, which turned it into a very low margin, a low profitability item. And from a business model, uh, as a mortgage lender, companies were looking for how do we offer something else that bumps those profits because uh, they, the margins were quite thin. I mean, with some like, somewhat like buying uh, stereos and electronic equipment at Best Buy or Circuit City, it really got down to very thin margins. And so the two responses were, one, uh, like the car dealer you, or the stereo dealer, you make up your money with add-ons. Um, you uh, come up with a sundry products that you can tie onto the mortgage. You get the title insurance business. And oftentimes companies were making more, for example, mortgage companies were making more money off the mortgage insurance or title insurance than off the entire rest of the transaction. It truly is the case a lot like buying a, a, a car uh, in the days of internet shopping. It, it's where those ancillary products were where the profitability game was. And then the other main dynamic was the federally guaranteed money through the GSEs had people argue about it, a competitive advantage. And then it became a trade-off of if I step outside of that lower cost source of funds through the GSEs, can I more than offset that with the increased profitability with these non-conforming transactions? And that's essentially what happened with the private label market and how it developed was that companies, you know, this was not an accidental mortgage crisis all the way up and down the chain, from the broker to the Wall Street securitization, the participants were making two or three times as much in fees and bonuses by directing and steering people into these exotic and, and ultimately unsustainable products than they would have with a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. I remember talking to one trade reporter who it really came home to him he went into refinance and was absolutely clear, I want a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. The guy comes back to him, 
and as he wades through the paper, it's an exotic option or a mortgage. And but if you're a broker and you're thinking I can make you know two thousand dollars for this standard thirty-year fix, or take a shot at getting the person into an exotic product and make two or three times that much, you know the incentives are pretty clear. So I think it goes back to one of the earlier things of principles of whatever the system. You have to realign the incentives. You have to uh, have everyone with skin in the game, which most of the participants did not have. And you have to have a floor of federal and state protections that provide a base level of, uh, of safety for consumers to enter in this field. I mean, it, it, we have hit this absurd point where a mortgage transaction is one of the perilous events of people's lives. I mean, people's lives have turned in totally different directions of either advancing into financial security and uh, in a place in the middle class or essentially falling off uh, the economic uh, wagon into uh, this downward spiral from which the, the really tragic part is most of these subprime borrowers either refinanced out of prime loans. Only 10% of these subprime loans were first-time home buyers, which is often missed in the, in the discussion. Are they qualified for a prime loan? Instead, we're steered to a loan that ends up in the result of loss of their home and essentially out of the home ownership market for a decade or more and for many of them for the rest of their lives. And I want to try to get uh, a we won't have to go to everybody commenting on the same question afterwards. But so let me start with you, Susan, now and try to m drive this to something a little bit more concrete about how we get from where we are today to what we might want to build that will meet some of these principles in the future. Um, you and I have spent some time at conferences lately where there are a variety of academics who have made the argument that uh, essentially FHA has worked over the years, that it does a uh, good job of being a counter-cyclical force when the market, private market fails. And that we essentially can go to a model in which that part of the market that needs public backing can be done by FHA or an FHA-like institution, and the rest of it should be subject to strict regulation and skin-in-the-game requirements, but we don't need any other secondary market institutions. We'll just provide regulation that applies to the transactions and set some government-created standardization, and we don't need an institution beyond FHA. Uh, we have the um, benefit, I guess one would say, of having been inside of HUD for some years and know about the strengths and weaknesses of FHA. Do you want to talk about whether you think that model is sustainable or not? And if not, what else is needed? Is regulation sufficient? And if not, what else do, is needed? Um, do, we, do we need to have explicit government backing of, res of resources or something else? I don't think an FHA uh, secondary market is sufficient. Uh, and I think, ironically, it's in part because of the stability argument. I think they would be outcompeted over time so that because they are not uh, profit uh, in incentivized, uh, uh, and of course there are pluses and minuses with profit, profit incentives, but we've seen FHA being outcompeted historically and specifically with the growth of the uh, subprime private label securities so that they were down to 2 or 3% of the market from 10% uh, within a matter of, of a decade. Uh, by the way, Fannie and Freddie were outcompeted as well, but to a lesser extent. Um, so I think that you cannot rely on times of crisis. For example, in 1998 when we had the uh, Russian default crisis, uh, even in the savings and loan crisis, you cannot rely on 
the public sector, as important as it is and as critical as it is, to step in quickly and be there and bring liquidity to markets. So we are in a, um, it, it's, there is tension here. On the one hand, I do think we need to have people, we need to have an entity that's very knowledgeable about how capital markets work, global capital markets, and is able to go in and out, but is also uh, incentivized and regulated, not one entity necessarily, how many is in question, but incentivized and regulated for the long run. Now, long run meaning also for the sake of the system as a whole. Other countries do this in, other, in some different ways. Canada basically has one set of regulations through its mortgage insurance. Uh, Denmark has its uh, secondary market regulated very detailed with loan-to-value ratios, et cetera. Uh, there are ways of getting there, but in every case that I have seen that works, there is capital at risk, there is standardization, and there is uh, incentives so that there isn't out com competition by niche players who are heterogeneous, who will grow the market uh, through these uh, products which are not pro-consumer, that are uh, exotic, and that you can make a lot of money on because, in fact, they're not transparent. And I'm going to come back to you because I want to ask you a little, tell us a little bit more about some of those other models in a second. But Barry, uh, specifically to this point, so if Susan argues that there is, that we need, we need the private sector there, that means private, ac private equity is at risk in an institution that's owned by private shareholders. What in that model need be its relationship to the government? Um, we had a range of implicit and explicit, we had, we had in theory implicit backing of the federal government during this last model. Um, it turns out, I think some might say, that a wider array of institutions than we initially understood had implicit backing of the federal government. What, what does that lesson teach us about what kind of relationships are possible uh, with the federal government and how can, how in, and whether is it still appropriate to have a, a backing for a privately uh, owned entity? I, I, think you, I think you brought that to the right starting place, which is we've learned, uh, as people argued uh, throughout the last decade, uh, that this notion of too big to fail you know, was not restricted to people who happened to have a federal charter. It was people who were so intimately entwined with the finance system that there really was no way they were going to be allowed to fail. Um, and so, um, you know, we know now that um, almost every major money center bank and, as it turns out, at least one insurance company are also GSEs. And so the question of what investors and governments uh, can expect in the future, I think, has been fundamentally altered. I, I don't care what you put on this screen, uh, the fact that the government has to step in and bail out a bunch of foreign, tra a bunch of traders in, in um, credit derivatives and credit default swaps who knew nothing about what they were doing um, so that we could pay banks like Goldman Sachs, what was it this morning, Mike, $10 billion, $20 billion, uh, that it turns out they invested with a counterparty whose ability to repay them seemed not to be actually on the table at the time, to me just converts this whole conversation to really one about what is the structure you put entities that are going to play a large role in the economy under. And there, um, I do think, uh, as Susan said, uh, leaving a full government entity in charge of this risks um, two, two outcomes. One is um, a system that's very stultified, provides a sort of a fixed benefit to consumers in a very constrained market environment. Um, FHA to the good um, has a very stable low down payment product which it hasn't been able to change in 15 years despite repeated attempts to do so because it needs legislative approval to do it and there's lots of competing interests. 
On the other side, it knows that seller finance down payment programs in its mortgage insurance program are, you know, time bombs almost as bad or worse than 228s in the front. And they can't get rid of those either because of the same factors. So you have a system that is not able to adequately assess and manage around risk. It's not able to bring innovation to the market quickly. Um, some form of intervention that, that combines these two, I think, is where you want to go. Um, and um, the fact of private capital at risk has to be sustained. So one alternative clearly would be a government-owned corporation. Right? If you thought the government was really willing uh, to put the kind of talent right, to sitting on a board and overseeing it, and you'd say your job is to run this for the benefit of the United States government, put money at risk, and let's not fool around about what the exposure of the government really is. You're a shareholder. Um, you could also go to a mixed shareholder ownership, which is actually how Fannie Mae was organized before it was fully privatized in 68. But the government has a good share of ownership. The last piece we have not talked about here is regardless of the structure, what is the governance? Right? Who are the stakeholders who are empowered to help manage any one of these entities? This goes much further to other conversations CAP has sponsored about corporate governance and responsibility. But I do think the recent history of the GSEs you know, throws that into sharp relief. And regardless of the form, if we move away from uh, the full government or full private, that has to be fully vetted and, and, and fully dimensioned. Um, the focus, finally, I would argue, ought to be, uh, for this entity, on markets that are not well served by other capital, on markets that provide something we agree has a public utility, like a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage or some kind of fixed-rate mortgage, uh, that have basic features that are safe for consumers, that are stable, that are designed to provide financing for a place you live in, as opposed to provide capital to gamble on appreciation. Um, having said that, uh, your model on how to think about risk was a linear one, and I would suggest, you know, you know, top to bottom, it really is more a series of concentric circles, and the and the pressure moves out and in from both sides. You have investors at the very top, you know, who ought to be subject to some kind of discipline and transparency. You have lenders in the middle who ought to be subject to management and control and expectations of fiduciary and prudential risk, and you have consumers who ought to be protected from the predations. Uh, of people, like Mike says, who are really simply out to sell them products with the highest margin, uh, with no regard for their ongoing safety. Let me ask one last question, and then I do want to bring the rest of the audience in. Um, one of the things that we did in response to the sort of deprivation of access to credit of many of our communities was not only to impose sort of more strict enforcement of uh, fair lending laws, but to actually create some uh, responsibilities for providers of credit to make sure that they were pro that they were fairly treating uh, low and moderate income communities, what we talked about as underserved markets, and um, obviously that's part of the reason why NeighborWorks has its the charter that it does. Two principal mechanisms by which this was accomplished were uh, G uh, the CRA and the requirements on the GSEs that they. Uh, attempt to lead the market or at least serve the market uh, in low and moderate income communities through the housing goals. And there were a, a variety of, of requirements. Sure. That's right, sure. exactly. Um, and I, um, uh, those two, both of those things, the housing goals and the CRA, have perhaps gotten an unfair rap. And we could spend a lot of time talking about why the, the, they perhaps have been unduly blamed. Uh, for some of this, but it certainly complicated the story when uh, people were trying to say, well, we are serving these markets uh, to try to deal with uh, some of the predatory behavior. 
an interesting thing is about to happen, which uh, Michael asserted, and I think all of us would agree, that we don't want a system of regulatory arbitrage. We want much more of the capital in the system to be subject to the same set of rules. The CRA and the GSEs both only covered a portion of the marketplace. And here we have an opportunity where uh, whatever the regulatory regime is, it is most likely to cover most of the, 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 most of the capital flowing into the system. How do people think about the role of some sort of affirmative duty to serve underserved markets in this environment? And what is the uh, successor, if you will, to uh, the requirements that the GSEs had and the housing goals had? Is that debate possible to reopen in this environment? And, and given the sort of, again, history of victimization of these communities, must it be? Or is there a danger of uh, exploding into the confusion and the arguments we've had? Well, just to take a stab at that, I, I would say it, it clearly has to be part of the conversation going forward. And I think the changes with uh, making uh, home mortgage disclosure information more transparent, coupled with the changes in the Community Reinvestment Act, probably spurred more innovation to serve underserved markets than any time in our history. I mean, it really put the pressure on lenders and the GSEs to figure out and and to a certain extent put some of their best and brightest to work to figure out how they could safely make credit available uh, to these populations. So I, I think there has to be some go-forward imperative that would continue to create that kind of dynamic. Because pre-changes uh, to HMDA and pre-changes to uh, the Community Reinvestment Act and tightening up on, on goals for the GSEs, uh, there wasn't much attention being paid. I mean, the people were paying lip service to serving underserved markets. But primarily, uh, you know, CRA exams back in that period were you know, lenders trotting out, you know, how much money they donated to the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts, which all of that is worthy stuff, but it's not credit. And the notion was you needed to be able to extend credit to these markets, not just do good things. And I think you need that kind of driver. Let's use that as an uh, excuse to bring Michael back up, if you don't mind. And I'll take the chair's prerogative to ask him the first question, then we will ask the audience for theirs as well. Um, Michael, uh, you need to stand there because I don't think we mic'd you. Um, uh, you absolutely. Uh, um, uh, one of the things that wasn't in your oh yes, and I'm, I should have mentioned this. I apologize. Susan has a, a, a planer to catch, and I had promised her she would be able to sneak out at this point. Um, uh, uh, can you talk about that last point about access to credit? Because I noticed in your principles, your first round of principles, it was not something that was in the original list of eight, and how this wider expanse of coverage of the market uh, th makes you think about the set of issues. So just to be clear, when I, when I was discussing the second set of issues specifically related to the topic today, I enunciated more about the sub-principle that was in our overall financial reform plan, the sub-principle of, of uh, a, a focus on consumers, and absolutely there needs to be a focus within that on uh, access to credit for low and moderate income households, um, for minority households, for first-time home buyers, as I as I mentioned. So I think that that is a critical a critical principle. Um, figuring out how to get that right across the market, I think, is the challenge. And it may not be that we've that any of our old forms are adequate to that task. And I think um, this is really an area where I think we're going to need to see. Um, 
uh, innovation in our regulatory tools, not just innovation in, in finance, but innovation in regulation, regulation that is um, uh, much more adaptable, um, and regulation that is um, uh, much more uh, able to get around the curve and ahead of the next financial innovation. Uh, because I think that one of the uh, one of the failings we've had in consumer finance is the same failing that we've had in prudential supervision, uh, which is regulation that is stuck um, looking at yesterday's problem and unable to see tomorrow's problems. And I think we're just going to have to have a fundamentally different approach to regulation if we're going to succeed. All right. Um, yes, go ahead, Barry. I, I think Michael's exactly right, and I think the history in the last 15 years with the GSE uh, housing goals reforms is actually a, a great lesson in a failed oppor missed opportunity and a direction for the future. Uh, at the time the 92 legislation was written, people understood both inside and outside of, of the GSEs, you know, where they, were, where they were lending, to whom they were lending, on what terms they were lending, and that lack of transparency led to a fairly blunt instrument in the development of a new mission focus for the two companies. Um, and over time, uh, you know, that focus seemed to get narrower and narrower uh, to the exclusion of some of the items that um, Ellen was discussing, um, that where the GSEs really could have added lots of, uh, lots of new value under a more enlightened regulatory regime, um, but because of the increasing focus on one numeric measure of, of worth in the system, actually became internally more and more focused on that as the mission which was a huge, huge missed opportunity. So I'd say going forward, that same broader sense of what is the purpose of an organization that has a charter or a purpose in the mortgage finance system, how can we think about that in a broad context, not to, not to give short shrift to the need to be active in the markets and provide credit, but you know, in a sense a more CRA-like approach to there's lots of ways you add value in the housing economy and you want to encourage these organizations to enter into them as aggressively and prudently as they can because they do bring all these benefits to that field. Standardization, liquidity, and the compression of margins that mean lower cost to consumers and the people who use the capital. Just add to, to, the, to, to what Barry said, but, but I think that, uh, Barry, one of, the, you know, one of the cautions, I think, of, of this time period as well is there was some uh, skepticism about an expanded mission for the GSEs that played into a narrower view of their affordability uh, goals, and that skepticism of expanded mission has to do with trying to the trade-offs involved in structures that have both public missions and private ownership, uh, and that compete in a market with others who have different um, institutional structures. You, you're going to get that kind of tension in the trade-offs inherent in that structure. And so, as we're thinking about the range of options for dealing with the GSEs, I think we need to. Um, uh, not be naive about those trade-offs. And I think when we come back to this discussion, this is the first in a series, I think what we're going to try to do next is uh, move this conversation to a, another level of specificity. Whether we put a, uh, a preferred proposal on the table or a straw man, I think the next round of this discussion will come, uh, uh, at least in the next time we invite you back for uh, a conversation in public, we're going to try to actually debate uh, uh, some specific options. And I think we'll get much more into the, uh, uh, th this very question of whether or not some of the uh, private ownership can be incented or regulated to serve public ends and where those uh, tensions come in the reality of our political system. 
Um, so what I'd like to do next is Christine will come through the audience. Uh, if people would raise their hands, she will uh, uh, bring the mic to you and you'll be called upon. Um, I'd ask you to please identify the name of the organization that you represent. If there is a member of the media, uh, uh, if you would raise your hands first. Let me do that first and then, okay, never mind. I don't see any, so we're going to go back to, uh, and Christine will bring you the mic. Identify yourself and you can direct your question to any or all of us who feel so inclined. Kent Watkins, Institute for Housing Innovations. I'd like to go back to what Ellen was saying, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and and um, <clears throat> excuse me, also Michael, um, which is the first question um, in in your sheet, which is um, um, rental versus home ownership. The the filter seems to be uh, always home ownership, mortgages, and all the vocabulary this morning. And uh, or almost all of it, and uh, I'd like to relate that both to this question and and sort of the p uh, policy aspects, which uh, you know, compared to Germany, you've got um, uh, more or less a stated policy there of 60% home ownership, 40% rental, if you will, and here we seem to always emphasize the American dream, very complicated kind of uh, psychological and political like um, uh, icons. And so if I could ask the panel, and um, I, I know uh, uh, Michael did address it from a consumer standpoint, this balance. But again, uh, if we could go back to that question and if, if the panel could uh, uh, say in different words how they would address that first question. Thank you. Go ahead. Well, I mean, uh, briefly, I, I, think, I think the same, you know, the same things that perhaps have been interpreted as applying only to home ownership, I would say apply to multifamily or rental housing as well. And for all the same reasons, right? The ability to, to have deep liquidity and a constant presence in the market is something that other fully private investors in the multifamily market have really not demonstrated over any period of time, while the two GSEs over a period of time in the old model have, and in fact today continue to be uh, maybe the principal source of availability for multifamily mortgage finance. To the degree of, to the point of regulation, I think one of the most successful regulatory innovations HUD enacted during the period of time uh, they were under the old regime, um, was the, the use of incentive systems to push the GSEs into different areas of multifamily finance, which were not normally conducive to their underwriting and risk-sharing model, um, which proved to be very difficult. But, you know, the multifamily market has many segments, um, some of which are well-served by fully private capital, a big middle part of which is largely served by GSE capital, and then a portion of which remains inaccessible the sort of the capital markets mechanism. And I would say in the future, trying to get a focus on how some form of government uh, support could get to that part of the market would be very, very important. If I can add, I think unquestionably rental housing, uh, affordable rental housing has languished and has not been anywhere near adequately supported over the last uh, 10 years. I would say, though, that that's not inconsistent and doesn't necessarily mean that home ownership uh, was inappropriately pushed. Uh, there are lots of uh, data available that show that the homeowners who are failing in their present loans, if you compare them to similar homeowners, same credit profiles, etc., who got responsible loans, 30-year fixed rate mortgages, they are actually performing very well. I think that it's easy to, and there are people who are pushing it, such as with the CRA, anti-CRA agenda, that these high foreclosures were because people were pushed in 
to homes they never could afford. These people could never be homeowners. The truth is, first of all, most of these people were homeowners before they got these bad loans. And if they had received what 15 years ago would have been the loan they would have received, they likely would be doing well now. Uh, this wasn't junk borrowers or pushed too far. These were just e extraordinarily unsustainable, abusive loans that were going to lead to failure even for the best of homeowner candidates. Uh, just one other observation is both the, the, the former GSE model, the current GSA model, actually did also very large investments in, in affordable rental housing through their purchases of low-income housing tax credits. And in the innovation space, we're really the first to get into that marketplace and sort of prove it for other corporate investors. The irony of this is that at the moment, they've basically done that at a, I'm not sure what the total is. Peter would know Freddie's exposure. But for Fannie, it was you know, over $20 billion in, uh, in a capital hit they took last quarter because they can't use the tax credits anymore. Um, and that's just shareholder money, you know, or in this case, taxpayer money, perhaps. Uh, that was just invested in affordable housing, uh, but not an insignificant part of supporting an affordable rental housing market. And when we do talk about rental housing, I think it's important to, to note um, that it is very hard to build, finance, and rehabilitate rental housing at rents that meet the needs of the people who are most likely uh, to be renters and are most in need of some form of subsidy. It will not come primarily from capital being available. It has right. to come from other subsidies from some source. Um, that said, and I think there's an important distinction between subsidy and finance, but one of the things in this series will be we will probably do a program specifically on the role of the secondary market in multifamily finance because I think we it, it's a question that tends to get addressed in the last question of every pr uh, panel on looking at secondary market issues. And we think it's very important. We want to make sure it's, it's considered well in the redesign of the system. All right, we have time for one more question. Pat Clancy, I'm the president of the Community Builders, a large nonprofit affordable housing producer. But I'm also a director of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Boston. Um, and uh, I believe quite strongly that the Federal Home Loan Bank system uh, has a lot of attributes that could uh, play a larger role into the future. Uh, its member ins financial institutions are, in fact, its shareholders. It has 40% public interest uh, or non-member directors. Um, there are 12 of them regionally uh, uh, scattered. Uh, the potential for innovation leading to standardization, as Barry and Susan talked about, uh, the potential to address issues like the VRDO uh, liquidity provision for, uh, for state housing finance agencies. There is enormous potential to take that system, which has not been terribly innovative. It's been below the radar. But to look at it from an institutional context and to see those regional entities as potentially the future for the future what, pardon me, Fannie and Freddie may have been at times in the past. So I'd be interested in uh, comments, Michael, on whether that's getting looked at by the administration and any of the panelists. Broadly across the financial system, at the federal home loan banks, at the GSEs, at our system of private mortgage finance, and I, I think we're, um, we are trying to um, address the set of questions, the set of substantive questions, um, without confining ourselves to either the particular institutions that have done what they did in the past or any assumptions about what those institutions would do in the future. Uh, that is to say, we're, we're really trying to take a, a fresh look at the whole system. So I, I appreciate your, your comment. 
Anyone else want to comment on the Humboldt Banks and their role in this going forward? Well, I, I would just say that, you know, at the community level, they, they clearly have played an essential role in, in making credit available. I mean, not only the financing they provide, they have a pretty robust affordable housing program. Their CIP advances are used by members in order to make uh, some of the uh, uh, products available in their local community. So I guess the question, you know, going forward is uh, how to best uh, utilize a, a vehicle that has existed for some time and is there uh, in this new regime, you know, what, where do they fit? Uh, uh, because I guess they were in a sense left off of the, the range of, uh, of uh, options here, at least uh, I don't know if that was uh, because there was no notion that uh, they were at play, but uh, I, I do think that, the, uh, that there will have to be some reckoning about where they fit in this new in this new paradigm. I, I think they've clearly been way under the radar, which I think has been a great shame because they are a huge potential tool to address all the issues we've talked about. I think they offer both um, opportunity and caution uh, to your question about the model. Uh, opportunity in that um, they, do, they do fulfill many of the same functions but with different mechanisms. They are a provider of capital and liquidity to their member institutions. Uh, the caution I would bring is twofold. One, I think very little attention has been paid to what the actual uses of the advances are, to what degree they fulfill the public purposes, or to what degree they've simply become a, a, a quasi-fed discount window for their member banks and a source of great profits from the leverage and arbitrage of the uh, net, uh, net interest income. And the second caution is for this model we're talking about, I would be very skeptical of a model that was cooperatively owned primarily by large primary market participants because I believe they have a vested disinterest in seeing the secondary market bring much of the value that I think it potentially has, which is uh, rapid innovation that's available across the board uh, that might impinge upon uh, some of the business plans and opportunities that the member banks themselves are most interested in exploiting and dominating, um, and access across all sectors of the finance system, whether they're members or not. So I mean, those are, to, to me, the, the yin and yang of this. And uh, the model of a cooperative ownership has been promoted, and the home loan banks have been used as an example. And that's my principal caution about the model. Well, with that, I think we need to end today's panel. Please, uh, uh, first of all, let me thank all of you for coming. Let me thank you for uh, watching this space, because we'd like to be a place where these issues are discussed over the next couple of months as, uh, uh, as legislation is being readied and proposals are being offered. And thank all the panels for, panelists for joining me.